0: Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn Church. We're grateful to be able to to gather with you this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. And it's just uh, good to be with you today to open up God's word with you this morning. We're in the book of Numbers once again this morning. So if you need a Bible, would you just raise your hand and uh, somebody will bring a Bible around to you uh, so that you can read along with us. We're actually going to be in uh, a lot of text this morning, so reading a lot. So I'd love for you to be able to read along with me this morning, uh, to be able to see what God has to say to us this morning. Also, if you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift uh, so that you could read God's word throughout the week. You know, we live in a, in a culture that is very much uh, attuned to pursuing the path of least resistance. I mean, we, we as a culture, I think in general, uh, prefer the path of least resistance. We want the easy path. We want the easy way to do things. I think in in a reality that the culture is a bit addicted to ease. We're addicted to ease. I mean, it can even be in the small things. I mean, isn't that the promise of every new technology? Is it's going to make your life easier? I mean, just recently, even just as an example of something simple, is I, uh, I just downloaded the most recent iOS on my phone and the new operating system on my Mac. And so now, this is really great, I can answer my phone on my computer, and that's great, right? But then a friend of mine said, uh, why do you need to answer on your computer when your phone's sitting next to your computer? And I said, because it's easier and therefore it must be better, right? Easier is always better in our culture. I and mean, as we get into our text this morning, we will see that God's people want the path of least resistance. What they perceive to be an easier option, though, actually leads not to joy, but sorrow, not to life, but death. But there's something deeper going on. What we see in God's people is not just a mere uh, mere matter of choice between one option or the other. What we see is a deeper issue of unbelief in God's people. The perceived ease of unbelief is something that all of us in this room can relate to because at different points in our life, we too wrestle with the fact that we believe easier is better. And a lot of times that comes out when we are struggling with unbelief. But I hope that our time in God's word today will encourage us, encourage us to walk more faithfully with him every day, as long as it's called today. And I hope that as we listen to God's word this morning, that we will be encouraged not to go it alone, but to help one another along in this journey. Before we open up to numbers this morning, let's just spend some time praying, asking God to do a work in our hearts, in our lives today. Father, we pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would be glorified That this would be about making much of who you are. Father, I pray this morning that as we look into your word, as we uh, preach your word, as your word is read this morning, that you would encourage our hearts to trust you more. To see you for who you are and that in light of who you are, Lord, that we would just have hope. We would have joy no matter what's going on in our life. And Lord, I know that there is a lot going on in each of our lives. There's a lot going on in our world. It's easy to struggle with unbelief And so I pray this morning that no matter where we're at, that we would be encouraged to know that even in the midst of our struggles, that you are faithful and true. Lord, help us to be a family together that sits under your word together, that can then encourage each other with your truth together. We pray that you'd be honored in this time this morning and for your spirit to do a work that only you can do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. We're actually going to go through chapters 13 and 14 this morning. As you look at that, there's a lot of text there. Uh, And so to begin our time, we're just going to read the first two verses of chapter 13 and then walk through the remaining verses in our time together. Romans 13. and Romans, I keep saying that. Numbers 13. Numbers 13. Verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Like I said, Numbers 13 and 14 is a long text, but it's a long text because it's telling a story. It's a story that as we read, it's really not that hard to understand. It's pretty simple to see what's going on in the midst of this story, but it's a story that's important for us to take note of. This story is, in the history of God's people, is a defining story of a defining moment in their lives. And so as we walk through this text this morning, I want us to visualize what's going on and heed God's word to us from Numbers 13 and 14 this morning. As we look at verses 1 and 2, we see that there's a key statement that's made. God says, go check out the land I am giving to you. The land I am giving to you. Now, this should take us back a bit. This should take us all the way back to Abraham. We've been going through the first five books of the Bible most of this year. And so, several months ago, we were talking about Abraham In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of his homeland to go to a new land. He says, I'm going to give this land to you. Genesis chapter 17, God reiterates his promise to Abraham saying specifically, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, not just to you, but to your offspring forever. And so much has happened to God's people since that promise. They've grown as God said they would. They were saved in Egypt by God's providence through Joseph, but then they found themselves enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But God led them out of Egypt by Moses, their mediator. God parted the Red Sea for them to cross over on dry ground when all that was before them was death and all that was behind them was death. God made a way. God provided daily food and water for them in the midst of the wilderness. God gave them the tabernacle so that his presence might dwell among them in the middle of them. God gave them his law to follow, saying, living under my lordship is always going to be better for you. And now here they are on the edge of the promised land, about to receive the inheritance of rest that they've been thinking about. They've been thinking and praying and hoping for since the time of Abraham. Hundreds of years have gone by and they're literally standing on the edge, looking into this, about to go into this land. This would have been a monumental time, an exciting time for God's people saying, we have finally gotten here. Here we go. So God says to them, send spies out just to scope out the land, to see this land that you're about to go into, to to come back and tell the people about this And then he calls them to select one spy, one man from each of the 12 tribes to go on this journey. In verses 3 through 16, we see the list of these men that are to be selected. In verses 17 through 20, we have the directions given by Moses for what the the spies are supposed to do while traveling through the land. Moses tells them, go check out the land. See if the people are strong or weak if there are few or many, if the land is good or bad, if the cities are camps or strongholds, if the land is rich or poor, if it's lush or it isn't. And so these 12 men go. They travel all across the land. In fact, it says they gather a huge cluster of grapes so big that it takes two men to carry it back to the camp of Israel. And at the end of this 40-day journey, they come back to the camp of Israel to give a report of what they've seen. And that's in verses 27 through 29. Look at what they say. They say, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. These spies come back saying, Look, the land is great. It's a fruitful land, but notice the word however. However, the people are strong. The cities, they are fortified. Now, as we listen to their report that they give back to God's people, what's missing in this report? There's something noticeably absent as they give this report. God is missing. God, who's been at the center of everything, is removed from the equation. They don't mention him at all as they think about going into this land. Notice they even say the land that Moses called us to go spy out. Not the land God said he's going to give to us. Verse 30, though, all the spies don't agree. Verse 30, Caleb comes. It says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. See, Caleb remembers what God promised to Abraham. He says, we've been waiting, we've been longing for so many years since our father Abraham to go into this land that God promised to him. And we know who God is. He is faithful. He is true. He has shown himself to be that way over and over and over again to us. So we can't doubt that now. Let's go. But the other spies reply back. This time, not just the, with a reiteration of a bad report, but they give an exaggeration of it. Look at verses 31 through 33. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, The sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. They exaggerate what's going on here. They had just come back with this huge cluster of grapes. Saying the land is a land that flows with milk and honey. But now they're saying, no, the land devours its people. It, It will eat us up. In fact, beyond that, there are giants there. We look like grasshoppers to these people. There's no way that we can do this. And so the people respond. Verses 1-4 verses through four in chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey, Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They scream and cry. And there's an escalating irrationality to what they're saying. At first they say, we should have just stayed in Egypt. Now they say, we we should have just died in the wilderness. No, let's actually go back to Egypt. No, more than that, let's pick a leader to lead us back to Egypt. This is not just a rejection of Moses and his leadership. This is a rejection of God. God, who every step of the way has led them out of slavery into freedom. Who has led them out of death into life. Who has promised them this land. And now they are saying, we don't want it anymore. We want to go back to slavery in Egypt. This is complete rebellion. But Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb all respond... They respond physically first. They fall on their faces. They tear their clothes in mourning because they understand the seriousness of what God's people are saying. This is not a minor thing for them to turn their back on God right now and say, we want to go back to slavery. So they cry out to them. They make a plea to the people. In verses 7 through 9, this is what they say to them. The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Notice how different their report and plea is. God is not left out of the equation. He is at the center of it. They say, look, he'll give us the land if we follow him, if we find favor with him. And we have. Look at all of his grace that he's poured out on us already. How many times he has spared us and provided for us. They call it for what it is. This is rebellion. So don't rebel against Yahweh. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people. Fear God. He is with us. Just as he always has been. He is with us. But see, Moses and Aaron Joshua and Caleb, they don't just have faith in faith. They don't have faith in some ethereal salvation. This is not the power of positive thinking or having warm thoughts, thinking if we just set our mind on something, then something good will come out of this. No, they have faith in God. God who will save them, who will save his people, as Joshua's name means. That he will do this work just as he always has. Now, man, at this moment, we would hope that the people would hear these words of truth. And have some sense brought into them to say, yes, you're right. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you for reminding us of all that God has done. That he will go with us. This is God we're talking about. He's never left us. He's never abandoned us. We don't need to fear. But how do the people respond? The beginning of verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Oh, how quickly they've forgotten what God has done How quickly they've forgotten his promises. How they even got to this point. To be able to stand on the edge of going in the promised land. How quickly they forget how they got there. And now when Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua want to lead them into the land that God says he's going to give to them. Instead of following them, they want to stone them. Pick a new leader. Go back to Egypt. And put shackles back on this is a defining moment in the history of God's people, but is a, it is a disastrously defining moment. God speaks to Moses, and in his speaking, we get to the root issue of their rebellion. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? See, there's a key phrase in there, a key question God asks. How long will they not believe me? See, this is not simply about God's people forgetting all that he's done. At the root of their rebellion is unbelief. They don't believe that God is good. They don't believe that God is faithful. They don't believe that God can win for them. They do not believe that God will protect them and provide for them. The road ahead of them looks too hard. It seems too difficult. It seems too dangerous. In the wilderness, on the edge of the promised land, they want ease at the expense of obedience. They want ease at the expense of obedience. And for that, God seems to pronounce pronounce judgment on them. Look at verse 12. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they God says to Moses, what I'm going to do is I'm going to strike them all down. I'm going to disinherit them as my people. And I'm going to use you to start over again. But more than an actual judgment, this is a prompt for Moses to do what Moses has always done. To stand in as a mediator for rebellious people. In verses 13 through 19, we see Moses do what he's done over and over and over again. To plead for grace from God for his people And he does two things as he intercedes for Israel. The first thing he does is he brings up the fame and reputation of Yahweh, of God, saying the nations know that you let us out of Egypt and now they'll think that you couldn't get us into the promised land so you killed us instead. But then Moses moves on and what he does is he appeals to God's character as God himself has revealed himself to Moses and to his people. Listen to his words in verses 17 through 19. Moses says, And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until... Now, this is how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. As Moses longed to see more of God's glory, we preached on that. We looked at that, that God preached a sermon of who he is to Moses. This is forever etched in Moses' mind, forever etched on his heart. And he has seen it on display over and over and over again since they left Egypt until now, that this is who God is. God, you're gracious, you're patient, you're long-suffering. Please continue to be that now to your people as you've done so many times before. So God responds to Moses's intercession as mediator. Verses 20 through 23, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. God relents from annihilating and disinheriting Israel, but he still brings justice He pardons their sin, but he does not remove its consequences. None of those who have continued to rebel over and over and over again, God says they've done it ten times. None of them will enter the promised land. And over these next 15 verses, God specifies the reality of the consequences of their sin and rebellion. None of this generation, except Caleb and Joshua, will enter the land God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. He said he was going to do this for Abraham, and he will. But it won't be with this group of people. It'll be their children. Those who thought that their children would be devoured in this land would become prey to the people of this land. God says, no, that's who I'm going to give this land to now. And so for 40 years, they will wander in the desert until all of them die. And we see that God gives some judgment right away. The men who brought the bad report are killed immediately for leading the people astray. See, God takes seriously his covenant promises and God takes seriously the obedience of his people. Now Israel responds. Verses 30 and 40. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. They hear this news and they mourn. They decide to go out on their own strength, saying, No, 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 we want, we want to go now. But see, they're not going in faith. They're going because they don't like the consequences. God has already given them new directions. He told Moses to lead the people where they want to go, to head back towards Egypt. But Moses tells them then, then Don't do this. God is not going to go with you. But just as they always have done, they continue to not listen. They go in to the land to try and fight. God does not go with them, and they're defeated quickly and pushed out of the, rent, of the land that God had once promised to give them. This disastrously defining moment is rooted in unbelief. God gives them what they want, and they will die in the wilderness. See, Sojourn, what we have to see here is the deceptive ease of unbelief. The deceptive ease of unbelief. They thought it would be easier to not go into the land. They thought it would be easier to not do what God was calling them to, asking them to do, promising to give them. It would be easier to go back to Egypt, to go back to slavery, to turn and run from the path and plans of holy God. Unbelief seemed easier, but it was ultimately deadly. This is a disastrously defining moment that would impact God's people, not just in this moment, but forever This would be recalled over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. This moment of unbelief that led to disobedience, that led to rejecting God. And it's instructional for you and I today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that this moment, including this and all the rest of the desert wanderings of the people of God, are for our instruction. They're an example to us. But it's easy for you and for me to sit here and read this, to hear this story To see God's people on the edge of the promised land. And then to see them turn away and walk away from it all because of their unbelief. And to think to ourselves, how foolish. How foolish. Do they not see what God has done? Do they not remember all that he's done? How foolish could they be when right before them is this land and God says he is giving it to them. How foolish. But sojourn, the reality is you and I do the very same thing in the wilderness of life. We want ease at the expense of obedience too. We have to deal with the deceptive ease of unbelief. So what are we to do with that? How do we deal with that in our own lives? I want to give us three things. Three things that we need to do in order to walk in obedience and not be deceived by unbelief. The first thing. We need to acknowledge that the road is narrow and that the road is hard. We need to acknowledge that the road is narrow and the road is hard. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Our culture tells us to get on the interstate. Easy is always better. Getting on the highway obviously seems preferable to a windy two-lane road. That's our alternative. We, we can look at the interstate. They seem to be heading to the same destination, at least in the general same direction. We can think, well, I'll just jump on it for a little while. It'll just help me get there a little bit more easily. It'll help me to get there a little bit quicker, a little bit faster. And on-ramps come so frequently. Almost incessantly, there's an opportunity to exit the small road to get on the big one. And so we're quick to take the next on-ramp. Maybe especially when the road is extra narrow, extra windy, and extra difficult. But what we don't notice as we zoom past on a, at a rapid pace is all the signs that say, Bridge out ahead. Bridge out ahead. But Jesus' words are clear. The wide and easy way leads to destruction. So instead, we must enter by the narrow gate. Few will find it. It will be hard, but it leads to life. See, we need to acknowledge this to be true. Because unfortunately, we are often taught and believe that when we follow Christ, that everything is going to be great for us. We're taught and believe sometimes that God is going to hook us up. He's going to grant us all our wishes and dreams and wants. He's going to give us what we want, how we want it, and when we want it. And when he doesn't, you find yourself dissatisfied with God, frustrated, maybe even angry at him. You pray for something and then complain to God because he doesn't give it to you wrapped up in the form that you had anticipated or wanted. You start to believe God's not good. He must not be for me. I mean, this is what Israel did. They knew the promises of God. They knew that God had said, I'm going to give you this land. And then when they come to the land, it isn't in the way that they had hoped or wanted to. They didn't believe that the road was narrow and hard that would lead to life. They wanted the wide and easy path. In those moments, the deceptive ease of unbelief creeps in. And we too are tempted to wander off the narrow road to the easy and wide way. Listen to me. You and I are in the wilderness right now. We are in the wilderness right now. You are not yet home. Jesus has not yet returned. The new city has not yet come. Sin is still present. Death is still universal. But as we walk through the wilderness of life, we have to ask ourselves do we believe that God is with us? Do we believe that the narrow road is worth walking? Do we believe that he's faithful, that he is good, that he will bring us all the way home? Do we believe that our joy is found in him, not the temporal joys of this life? Look, sometimes it's easier to pursue sexual satisfaction outside of marriage. Sometimes it's easier to pursue a dating relationship that you know is not pleasing to God or good for you. Sometimes it's easier to cut corners at work. Sometimes it's easier to become angry or irritable with your kids or your spouse. Sometimes it's easier to try and control all circumstances and every outcome in our life. Sometimes it's easier to run away from a difficult relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage or family relationship. Sometimes it's easier to go back to old habits of comfort and release. Maybe something has happened in your life recently something especially challenging, legitimately hard. And now it seems easier. It seems easier to medicate by returning to the old ways, by seeking comfort in something or someone, but not in God, not in what is honoring to him. The world constantly tells you to pursue that path to get on the interstate, to pursue what is easier. It tells you constantly, you are in control. You need to do what's best for you. You deserve this. The world constantly tells you to go back to Egypt. But Egypt always and only will be slavery and death. But God says to you, I have rescued you out of that. I have rescued you out of that. I am giving you an inheritance. Trust me along the way. Trust me along the way. What you perceive as easy right now and therefore better might in fact only be one step closer to death. In the wilderness, we are going to be tempted in various moments, like Israel, to live a God-free lifestyle. A God-free lifestyle Where God might be on our lips, but he is not Lord over every aspect of our life. So we say like Israel, God, what are you doing? Why did you bring me here? Why are you doing this in my life right now? Why am I in this situation, if we even go to God at all? Dissatisfaction with what God is doing and how he is doing it is what leads to rebellion But as one pastor puts it, this satisfaction tells us more about our souls than our circumstances. This satisfaction tells us more about our souls than our circumstances. You and I are faced with the same battle of unbelief. Will you trust God to get you all the way home? Will you trust him to finish the work that he's begun in you? Or will you turn and go your own way because it seems easier right now? It's in those moments that we need to be reminded of the truth of Matthew 7, of Jesus' words to us, that life is found on the narrow and hard road. Entering the promised land means confronting fortified cities and men who are like giants. Sometimes the road will be uphill. Sometimes it'll be extra curvy. It will most definitely take longer and will be at a slower speed limit but it's the only way to get to the destination that you're going. It's the only way to get to the new city. See, knowing that the road is narrow and hard that leads to life, knowing that we are going to be tempted to wander off of it, we need to put one foot in front of the other and move forward on the path before us in the way and the will of God. Obedience, not ease, must be our aim. Because at the end of the day, obedience is what brings comfort. Because it's exactly where God wants you. It's exactly where he has you. But sojourn, how do we walk the narrow road? How do we strive to enter this rest? This seems burdensome. It seems too hard. It seems too difficult. And sometimes it may just seem flat out impossible. And there's truth to that. Jesus says to us, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Which leads to our second point. Sojourn, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. A familiar verse to many of us. Maybe new for some of us this morning. But just listen to what it says to you today. Let us also lay aside every weight in sin which so easily ensnares us. Let's lay that aside and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I run the race. You and I travel the road before us by fixing our eyes on Jesus, not self-will. Not some inner strength that you muster up on your own. The only way for you to enter into the promised land, the only way for you to enter into God's rest, the only way for you to stay on the narrow road is to fix your eyes on Jesus. But notice what he says about Jesus. He says he's the founder of our faith and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He holds all things together, Colossians 1 tells us. How is he those things? He gives us the answer. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus, with the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Saying, I'm going to go to this cross to set you free from sin and death. To be raised again to give you life. Jesus purchased life for you. He endured the temptations of the wilderness and he did not fall to them. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 encourage us with this truth. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 16 and verse 18 say this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. What he's saying here is Jesus was 100% man, just like you and me. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, you and me who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that he might satisfy God's wrath, free us from sin and death. And this is what the promise is to you and me through Christ. It says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He has suffered when tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. This is what the promise is. He is now able to help those who are being tempted. Through Jesus, we have help because Jesus has walked the wilderness road before us. Hebrews chapter four reiterates the same thought. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You and I are weak, but Jesus sympathizes with that. No, we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. says this, because of that then, let us with confidence, not in ourselves. Confidence in Jesus. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The wilderness road is difficult. It's narrow. It leads to life. Not many will find it, but Jesus walks ahead of us. He is the way that we can follow. See, Moses was a mediator, but Jesus is a better mediator who does not simply plead with God for pardon, but dies the death we deserve for our rebellion, declaring it is finished. At the cross of Christ, both the justice and mercy of God come together. They meet there because at the cross, Christ takes on the penalty for our sin, but at the cross, he frees us to become children of the living God. And so when you're struggling with unbelief, as you survey the road ahead of you, look to Jesus who died for your unbelief. Look to him who died for your unbelief and says he will bring you all the way home. He is the way because Jesus defeats sin, Satan, and death to give us rest that we cannot enter into or obtain on our own. Now, what does it mean for us to fix our eyes on Jesus? Is that just some kind of spiritual sounding phrase, something nice to say? Yeah, yeah, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. If we think about it, it's just a very literal phrase, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus. I'm trying to teach my son Owen about how to play baseball right now. And one of the things you say in baseball, if you grew up playing baseball, is keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Baseball is a mechanic sport where you have to look at what you're actually doing. So if you're just looking around swinging, you're not going to hit the ball. So I tell him, hey, buddy, you've got to keep your eye on the ball in order to make contact with it, to hit it to where you want to go. Fixing your eyes on Jesus is the same kind of thing. We can't just be looking all over the place. It's an intent focus on Christ. You may say, but Jesus isn't here like a baseball is here. I can't see Jesus. How am I supposed to fix my eyes on something I can't see? see, that's the beauty of God's grace is that God gives us means of grace and he calls us to utilize those means of grace. He gives us his word to hear his word, to ingest his word. His word is not just words on a page. It says that it'll cut us to our core. It'll expose everything in our life. It'll encourage us. It'll speak truth in us. There's power in God's word. He gives us his word to fix our eyes on Jesus. He gives us his people that we might have others around us, brothers and sisters around us, to help us fix our eyes on Jesus. And he gives us his ear. He says, come to me, pray to me, speak to me. If you're struggling, if you feel tempted to wander off that narrow road, to go the easy way, because it seems better at the moment, talk to me, cry out to me, ask me for help. Come with confidence before me, and I'll give it to you. See, what did Israel do when it was struggling with unbelief? They didn't go to God. They reacted and they ran. Notice in all of Numbers 13 and 14, they never stop and say, hey, let's pray about this. Let's go to God about this. Let's rehearse all the goodness and grace of God that we've seen. No, they react and they run. They take their eyes off of him. But sojourn. Instead of taking God out of the equation, setting Him aside, disregarding who He is, and running, He must be at the center of it all. Sin will seek to entangle, unbelief will seek to bring you off track. The easy road is deceptive, but the bridge is out ahead. So fix your eyes on Jesus, run to Him, follow Him. When you're in the wilderness, it's a, it's a perfect opportunity for us to recognize our desperate state apart from God. If God doesn't lead us, if God doesn't go before us, then we will not make it. So it's in those moments that we need to cry out, acknowledging our need for him, crying out for mercy. But knowing this truth that God invites you into eternal rest through Christ, and that invitation is open to you no matter who you are or what you've done. So you don't clean yourself up to come to God. God doesn't have a list of requirements to say that you need to meet these requirements before I'll lead you, before I'll guide you, before I'll walk with you. That's what Christ has done for you. He met every requirement that God had for you. What God requires, he provides for you so you can come to him as you are. Maybe you've wandered away and think it's been too long. Maybe you've never come to faith Maybe you're teetering on the fence right now, whether you're gonna trust and obey or go your own way, but no matter where you find yourself today, let this be your prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Ease at the expense of obedience only leads to death. So turn in repentance and faith, no matter where you're at today, to the God who's faithful who will absolutely bring you all the way home. Fix your eyes on Jesus, sojourn. And our third point, travel together. Travel together. The narrow road is difficult. It's difficult. But the narrow road and the road to life is not a solo journey. First and foremost, God goes with us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 that he will not leave us, that he will be with us to the very end of the age. But in addition to that, God gives us one another. We are sojourners together on the journey. And that is God's gift to you. Listen, isolation is deadly. It is deadly. So we need gospel community that is striving for God's rest in Christ. Israel rebelled together and they fostered the unbelief of one another. The spies came back with a bad report and then the whole congregation of people responded in unbelief together. And so you and I must stand together in gospel truth, not worldly wisdom. And when one of us is looking back to Egypt, When we look around and see one of our brothers or sisters looking back to Egypt, wandering off the narrow road, thinking the easy way must be the better way, by God's grace, by his power, as we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, we must exhort one another to move forward in faith in the way of the Lord because he's good. Because his way is the way to life, not a step toward death. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 say this, Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Look, we need to speak to one another, and we need to listen to one another. We need to help one another hold our Confession and our confidence in Christ, especially when we're struggling, especially when the road is particularly difficult. We need each other. Look, there are people in our church right now, brothers and sisters, sitting around you this morning that are going through some difficult things. Some really difficult things. Whether it's a mental struggle or a physical struggle or a spiritual struggle, there are people in this church this morning that are suffering on the wilderness road. And it's so easy for me and you to get tired. To only think about ourselves. To just be thinking, well, I just need to get to the end. And we look and we say, I don't want to mess around with that right now. But listen, God calls us to bear one another's burdens. And every time we see one of our brothers or sisters struggling, we shouldn't look at that moment and roll our eyes or think, oh, this is going to distract me. We should look at that with joy and say, praise God that I get to be here. That I get to help pick them up then when they're struggling to move forward, that I can grab them by the back of the shirt, lift them up, throw them on my back if necessary, and move forward with them by God's grace, by his power. And there's something powerful just being in the presence of God's people. That's why it's so important to gather together on Sundays. Because even in the midst of your struggles, if you're struggling right now, is to look around you and see so many other people who may be at a better place right now and to be encouraged by their faith. Maybe you don't even feel like you can sing the words of the songs you've been singing this morning. You can't even listen to the words being preached. You can't listen to God's word this morning, but you can sit there and you can listen to your brothers and sisters. You can watch them be engaged and say, man, they have faith. I'm encouraged by that. Let them carry you. Let them carry you along the way and know that you offer that to those around you. Community is not your hope. Jesus is your hope, but your community can help you hold fast to that. It is easier not to help bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters. And it's easier for you to be in isolation. But that's the deceptive ease of unbelief. Man, travel the road together. That is God's grace to you. And if you're not struggling right now, there'll be a moment where you will be. Because the road is narrow. The road is hard. But it will lead to life. Help one another. See, the world in your f- flesh will constantly tell you to pursue the easy way, but don't be deceived. The ease of unbelief never leads to life. Sojourn, I want us to be a church that will care for one another along this wilderness journey, helping us to fix our eyes on Jesus. So look out for your brothers and sisters as they look out for you. I want to close with two questions, just two things for you to, to think about, to mull over this week. Where are you leaving God out of the equation of your life right now? Where are you leaving God out of the equation right now? And the second question, where are you tempted to believe that the easy road is the better road? Where are you tempted to believe that the easy road is the better road? Man, bring that before the Lord today. Bring that before your community today. And let's strive together to enter the promised land, knowing that Christ our King has gone before us and heeding his words to us this morning. Jesus says this to you, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Let's respond to God's word and God's grace now. Our first application today is to come to the table, to be strengthened and encouraged and humbled by grace. May this meal strengthen you today to pursue Christ in all things. May it remind you today of what Jesus has done and encourage your soul that satisfaction is not found in circumstances, but in Jesus who's faithful and true. He has gone before you into the wilderness and he has endured to the point of death, not for himself, but for you, so that you could be set free now and forever. His body was given for you. His blood was shed for you. May this meal this morning remind you that Jesus is better May it call you once again to place your life in his hands, every aspect of it. May it encourage you to build your life on Jesus, recognizing that everything else in this world, though it may seem easier, though it may seem better, is only sinking sand. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning to take communion, because this is a declaration of our desperate need of God's grace, that we understand the narrow road and that all we have, our only hope is Jesus. And so if Jesus is not your only hope this morning, what we want to ask you to do is not come forward to take communion. We want you to take Christ today. We want you to cry out in your seat for God's mercy, that God would save you today. This as simple as that, to turn away from your sin and say, Lord, I don't want to be on the wide and easy way that leads to destruction. I want life, and I know that comes through Christ. So pray that today. Ask God to save you today so that next week you could come forward and participate in this meal of grace. If you have questions about that, please come talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. That's why we're here as a church, is to help you understand what it looks like to know and follow Jesus. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready. Tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink, and what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let that encourage your hearts today. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace Lord, it is so easy. We confess, Lord, it's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to be knocked off course. It's so easy to think that easy is better. And Lord, our world and our flesh constantly tell us that. They constantly communicate to us that it's better to pursue what's most easy, the the path of least resistance. But Lord, help us to know that what's better is to fix our eyes on Jesus, to follow you, that even when we see in front of us up hill battles and we see fortified cities that we know that you are giving us a place of rest and that's found in Jesus so lord help us to fix our eyes on him help us to walk in obedience not in our own strength not in our own power but by the grace and by the spirit that you give us in and through Christ and lord we thank you that we don't journey alone that we travel this road together and so lord i pray that we would be a community that seeks to lock arms with one another to run the race before us together Lord, help us to encourage one another. Help us to bear one another's burdens in this life, on this wilderness road. Help us to rest in the grace that you've given us together. Lord, we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for your faithfulness, even when we struggle to be faithful. And so as we come forward this morning now, I pray that we'd be encouraged in your grace, that we'd go out of this place, resting in who you are and seeking to keep our eyes straight ahead, moving forward to where you're leading us, for your glory and for our good. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.